0: How's everyone? As <clears throat> Will's going through that list of qualifications, I think it's pretty important to note that that really is the goal <clears throat> for every man of God. You hear those qualifications, you're like, whoa, this is, this is heavy. And then you realize that the grace of God, that if it weren't for the grace of God, Impossible to keep. I want to talk to you this morning about the worth of Christ. In his book of sermons, known as The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis states the following. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and ambition. It's going to be a key word for today. Fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So if we were to try and restate Lewis's idea, we might say that our perspective of what it is that is really of great value, or our perspective of what it is that really has ultimate worth, can oftentimes be kind of diminished and kind can oftentimes be kind of dumbed down. And to continue to borrow from his idea, ambition can do that. Specifically, human ambition can do that if we stick to the idea of what human ambition means. Because human ambition is the desire to achieve and accomplish for the purpose of of power, or prestige, or position, or high esteem. And maybe the greater question for us is, even, how do we know that our spiritual ambitions are of the purest motives? That's the idea we want to talk about today, and I believe that the Apostle Paul is going to establish for us some safeguards that we can measure our motives against to determine the level of their purity. I don't want to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me, please. As I read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. Apostle Paul says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more than he tells us why. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are humbled this morning as we come before you as a people. And Lord, I would pray that, that this morning, God, we would get a glimpse of your worth. That would be that would be our great need, God. To get a glimpse of, to be reminded of, to be changed by, to be transformed by, a glimpse of your true worth, your truth value. That's what we need. It's what the Moors need this morning what we need in the midst of the realities of this life. So, Father, I pray that You, by Your grace, You would speak to us this morning, God, and allow us just a small glimpse, because that would be enough to change our hearts, God, forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. As we talk about these safeguards that we're going to use to measure the motives of our spiritual ambitions, I want to point out three things to you this morning. I want to talk to you about guarding the truth, living the truth, and knowing the truth. So let's talk about guarding the truth. Look in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. After, at Pentecost and afterward, the gospel message spread like an out of control wildfire. The good news of the gospel, it laid hold of the hearts of men and it awakened them to the reality that the light of the world really was Christ. And that's relevant because Jesus came to his own. They didn't accept him. Why? Well, because they loved darkness more than they loved light. So through the spreading of the gospel, as the gospel lays hold of the hearts of men, people are realizing that their hope is in Him. Not in Phariseeism, not in Sadduceism, not in any type of religion or outward religious activity. And I think it's real important that we stop there and note... That through the spreading of the gospel, which is still truth today, that through the spreading of the gospel, God is defining and God is redefining what true religion is. Through the spreading of the gospel, God is being very particular. God is stripping away from men any attention. God is stripping away from men any worth, and He is placing maximum attention and infinite worth upon His Son. Through the spreading of the Gospel, God is taking attention off of men, off of sex, off of priests, and placing all attention on Himself to kind of relay that this movement of grace has absolutely nothing to do with men Grace never has. Grace never will. A.W. Tozer states, true religion is not discovered or conscripted by man. Christianity grows downward from heaven, not upward from the earth. It does not stand upon the earth. Its roots are in heaven so that man has nothing to say here at all. So the first step of gauging the purity of our spiritual ambitions is found in our desire to exult in nothing, absolutely nothing other than the grace of God. And that, beloved, that's the truth that we're to guard. Because it's through the spreading of the gospel that, yeah, there's a renewal taking place in Jerusalem, but spiritual renewal, it always begins the same way Every place, whether it be in the context of a local church or in the context of an individual's heart, it begins the same way. Renewal, revival, resurgence, whatever we choose to call it, it begins and it has its stamina when the joy, complete joy, full joy of God's people is found in the worth of who God is and the worth of what God has done Based upon grace alone. Grace alone. Paul is very honest in the words that he uses to identify these men as well as identify the idea that these men are promoting. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil doers. He calls them mutilators. Why? Why such harsh language? Well, when the Gospel was being spread among the Gentiles, certain group of Jewish men, they were following the trail of the Gospel because the Gospel always leaves behind it chaos. It always disrupts the norm. So certain Jewish men who are claiming to be believers also, they're following the trail of the Gospel and what they're doing is they're telling men what they must do in addition to what God has already done. Now, they're not denying belief in Christ, but they are adding that the belief in Christ has to be accompanied by circumcision according to the law of Moses. In other words, God has already defined what true religion is. It's God-centeredness. So now these Jewish men are coming behind what God has established And trying to redefine true religion as something that grows downward from heaven and upward from the earth at the same time and they meet in the middle and somehow they intermingle with each other. And as recipients of grace, the very words that they speak, look, it causes us to cringe at the depths of our redeemed hearts. And listen, we can hear the evil. We can hear the mutilation. Listen to their words in acts 15:1 but some men came down from judea and were teaching the brothers listen unless you are circumcised according to the customs of moses you cannot be saved it's not misinformation that's evil I can't imagine stepping into a place that we've been in the past, a place like Africa or somewhere, leading someone to Christ and then turning around and saying now, unless you take membership the way that we do membership back home, you cannot be saved. See, the ESV that I'm reading from says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Does anybody else have a different version? What's your second? Okay. N.A.S. says, beware of the false circumcision. Now, when the Bible speaks of circumcision, the Greek word means to cut around. Speaking of circumcision. Now, the word that Paul uses for circumcision in chapter 3, verse 2, which is accurately translated mutilation, means to cut through, to cut up, to butcher up to butcher into pieces. Paul is intentionally wanting us to see the graphic images that he's projecting because their attack, the attack of the Judaizers, is a brutal mutilation of grace. It's a brutal mutilation of grace that comes from God alone. Now listen, Paul is indeed offering a battle cry to the church. Of course, Paul is saying, listen, as a group of believers, do not allow false teaching to creep in among you. Now, I would say as a church, and I can speak on behalf of the elders with confidence and, and, and competency, I believe, by saying we are completely dedicated to that, as I'm sure you are. But what about, what about what happens when we step out of the sanctuary of our homes on Monday morning and we're we're breathing in secular air. What happens then? What happens What happens when false doctrine is not just about something that's making its way into the church that we're trying to guard, but false doctrine at this point becomes something that's trying to make its way into everyday life. Our everyday lives. By suggesting to us that there is something as equal value, even equal value, with grace. What happens then when the world's bombarding us and causing us to be tempted in our perspective of what ambition really is? What about those times? What about those everyday moments? See, I believe the call to be on guard It's not just a call to protect what's coming into the church. It's a call to protect what's taking place in our everyday life. It's a call to protect the idea that we can rely and find hope and find comfort and find peace in anything other than the grace of God. Because to suggest that we can have any type of ultimate happiness, any type of ultimate joy, any type of peace, faith, in anything other than the gospel, other than the grace that comes from God, anything other than true religion, listen, beloved, it's a mutilation of grace. It's a mutilation of grace to think that there's anything that is beyond what God has given us that brings us ultimate joy. And that sparks in Paul the exhortation to safeguard this truth. Look what he says in verse 1 of 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe to you. It's a safeguard for you. When I think about guarding something, my mind immediately goes back to my time in the military. One of the times, among many times, I remember being in Nuremberg, Germany, standing in the front gate about 3 a.m. on one of the coldest nights I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm there, and I'm guarding, and I'm watching what's coming in and what's going out. When you think about guarding something, you might even think of the guards of honor who are employed by Arlington Cemetery. The soldiers who 24-7, regardless of the elements, regardless of what's going on in the world, it is their sole duty to guard over the tomb of the unknown soldiers and they're dedicated to it. Or, when you think of guarding something, you might even think about a parent. Now listen. If you want to see my wife take on the role of a guard dog, listen, say something about one of her children and she will take on that role quickly. Listen, a mother, a mother's protection against her child is nothing to be trifled with. Agreed? I think the point is, we diligently guard over something that we have placed infinite worth on. Listen, I took guard duty serious. And the reason that I took guard duty serious was because of the worth of the thousands of people that were living on this base that I was guarding. The reason that the Arlington soldiers take guarding this tomb seriously is because they have placed a great amount of worth on the memory of those even though they're known only to God. Listen, we guard based upon worth We guard over something based upon the worth that we place on something. So I think the question is, really, what is the worth that we've placed upon God's grace? Now, how do we continue to monitor even our spiritual ambition? How do we continue this journey? Well, we not only guard truth, but we live truth. Let's start in verse 1 again. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, the evil doors, those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So let's pay attention to his, his list of the things that he's putting confidence in or once did put confidence in. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, and that's quite a list, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Tozer says that true religion grows downward from heaven and not upward from the earth. Now, if that's the course and the progress of our Christianity, then the Apostle Paul is rightly instructing us to rejoice in verse 3. But listen, but not just simply rejoice. To say to a person simply and solely rejoice, it could suggest that there's another source aside from the downward flow of God's grace that a person can find hope in. Paul's comparison chart says otherwise. Paul looks down these accomplishments as he's going through the file cabinets of his mind. He's developing this list. And as he develops this list, he compares all of his accomplishments to the person of Christ. And the only option that he has is to write in bright neon letters loss across everything that he has previously accomplished. And he has accomplished ambitions. Not hopeful ambitions. He reflects on his religious zeal. He reflects on his family stock. He reflects on his thorough religious education and he notes, and this is the practical application, he notes that all of those things will have its end. But let the practical application lead us to the spiritual truth that, that compared to the worth of Christ, they have no place. They will come to an end. So will ours. So the second step of monitoring our spiritual ambitions is found when our desire is to find hope in nothing other than the grace of God. Where does your hope lie? It lies nowhere other than the grace of God. And that's the truth we are to live. Say to a parent, simply, rejoice when they've just found out devastating news about their child's health. Say to a woman, rejoice. Simply rejoice when she's lost her husband of 40 years. Say to a man, simply rejoice when he's lost his job of 18 years. Say to a woman, simply rejoice when she's just been told by her husband that he doesn't love her anymore. There has to be an object that we find our joy in because. There will be a time, there will be a time, beloved, when we will not be able to draw our joy from previous ambitions or previous accomplishments. It's coming. There will be a time when we will not be able to delight in the health of our youth. There will be a time when we will not be able to lean on even current relationships that we hold so dear. There will be a time when we will not be able to trust in the politics that govern our nation to continue to lead us. There will be a time when all of our human capabilities and all of our human accomplishments have no place at all in relation to giving us any type of hope whatsoever. There has to be an object that is of much greater worth than any circumstances that we would ever face. The true story is told of a very faithful follower of Christ. He was a missionary. He was dying of cancer. He was on his deathbed. And his wife faithfully stayed beside him at all times, wiping his brow with a rag. And in doing so, she seemed happy. And she seemed content. And a family member who was an onlooker became very irritated by her mood. And he said this to her. How can you be so happy when something so evil is happening? Wow, that's a relevant question. And that question applies to all of us. We might not call it evil, but we'll call it a trial because it is. We'll call it a problem. We'll call it suffering. Very relevant question. This is how she answered. Let's revisit the question. How can you be so happy when something so evil is happening? Here's her reply. My husband deserves to go to hell just like you and just like me. And because of Christ alone, in a few hours, my husband will be with God in heaven. Is that not worth rejoicing about? That's why Paul says, reorient your affections. Redirect your attentions. Realize how you're living your life. Be aware of the way that you live. And how does he say to do that? He issues a command. The command is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the downward growth of your Christianity and know that there is nothing good that's coming from any type of upward growth because there is none. And it seems as if Paul is establishing rejoicing in the Lord as the necessary measure that we take in order to not put any confidence in the flesh. Because to rejoice in the Lord means that I find my complete joy, my complete satisfaction My complete hope, my complete faith, my complete trust, my complete hope for the present, my complete hope for the future in the worth of who Christ is and not based on any accomplishments or present or hopeful ambitions. And in addition to that, it seems as if Paul is presenting his case as if this is simply the normal Christian life. Because... Paul is calling on the Philippians to rejoice. He's rejoicing from prison. He's calling on them to rejoice in their poverty and in their affliction, I think, according to 2 Corinthians 8. And we know that the Apostle Paul, he's not talking about a joy that can come from favorable circumstances because the reality is they don't have many. He's talking about a joy that comes from placing a greater worth, a more... Infinite worth on something that has such value that it so far surpasses where we are in life and our circumstances and our problems. You know what I believe that Paul is ultimately saying to us? I think he's saying, yes, guard truth. Yeah, he's saying live truth out. But how do we even do those things? Lastly, we do those, we accomplish those by knowing truth. Knowing truth. Let's read verses 7-11. through We'll have this embedded in our minds, hopefully, in our hearts. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of some things, The things that were on my list. No, all things. He's identifying with everyone. If you can't identify with Paul things, then Paul's going to identify with your things by saying, I count all things. All things as loss. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is talking about knowing Christ. We are too. We're talking about this morning about knowing truth in the form of knowing a person by the name of Jesus Christ. Because Paul is sustained by this truth. In the midst of his suffering, he is sustained by this truth that suffering the loss of not some things, but that suffering the loss of all things results, as he's taken his list, He's stamped loss across it. He's sustained by the truth that suffering the loss of all things leads to the gain of the most important thing, which is the person of Jesus Christ. That I may know Him. The word know it's from a Greek word that highlights the intimate love relationship that exists between a husband and his wife. Notice verse 8 again. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We're introduced to the third step, engaging the purity of our spiritual ambition. And it's found in our desire to know and value the person of Jesus Christ above all things, what things, above all things. When I was very young and uncaring of myself, I recklessly pursued my current wife. Now, for those of you who do know where Hamlet lives, I lived about three, four miles back from him. My wife lived in Mount Hope, so I don't know exactly how many miles it is across that mountain. Do you have an idea Okay, 10 miles. There were numerous times that I literally walked that mountain. Numerous times that I walked that mountain just to see her, even if it was for a brief moment. When you value something, when you value a person, a place, or a thing above yourself, that really does have the ability to govern what you do. Doesn't it? And you find yourself, <laughs> if you've placed great worth upon that person, place, or thing, you find yourself being governed in radical ways. But I believe that there's a greater test that determines our worth of something greater than that immediate moment. In other words, I don't think that we can, that I can look at the current value that I place on my wife based upon how I lived, how I acted, how my affection for her was governed 20 years ago. The greater test is, how do I value her right now? My marriage relationship cannot currently be sustained in the present because of past affection. The issue is, how do I value her right here, right now? Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted, past tense, as loss for the sake of Christ. It sounds like at one point, the Apostle Paul had a very sound, very solid love affair with the person of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that he goes on to say in verse 8, Indeed, I count, present tense, everything as loss. In other words, this love affair that God started with the Apostle Paul many years ago in the past. It's still going strong in the present. You remember what it was like when you got your first new car or your first new used car? Do you remember you remember that immediate value and that immediate sense of worth that you placed upon that car? Maybe it was a new toy, maybe it was a gun, maybe it was the updated the newest updated phone, smartphone. Do you remember that immediate sense of worth that you placed on that? Listen, before you get into my new car, need you to wipe your feet off, kids. No Cheetos in the back. No eating in the car. But it doesn't take long to come to the conclusion that you know what? It's just really a car. And before you know it, the kids are in the back. They're eating Cheetos. They're rubbing their hands on the seat. Wiping their hands off. And it's like, "Ah, I don't care. Okay? Paul seems to suggest... Paul seems to jest that a person who has established the person of Christ as their ultimate worth and their ultimate value has entered into a love relationship that never gets old. Lamentations 3.22.23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, that's what growing in Christ really is. That's what sanctification in the Lord really is. Man, it's not about me making new discoveries of myself. And then as I make these discoveries of myself, I change these these discoveries and try to conform to who Christ is, that's not sanctification. That's not growing in Christ. That's not growing in godliness. Growing in godliness is making new discoveries about the person of Christ. And because of the worth of Christ, I'm so taken aback about this new discovery that I change because of the worth of Him. It's not about making new discoveries of myself. It's about making new discoveries of Christ. And I believe that that's relevant in every aspect of the Christian life. Paul makes it relevant in the form of suffering, for example, right? Because he says, I have suffered and I'm going to continue to suffer to know him more. Listen, Christians don't suffer just because they're Christians. Christians suffer in part because we're human and we live in a fallen world. But what we do know is Christians definitely suffer for Christ when they respond to the intimate discoveries that they've made about the worth of Christ. The more conformed I am to the person of Christ is because the passions of Christ become my passions. When I know the person of Christ based upon the infinite worth of who He is, I become more passionate about the Gospel. Why? Because He's passionate about the Gospel. When I know Him in the sense of infinite worth that's attributed to Him, I become more passionate about discipleship. Why? Because He's passionate about discipleship. Not because Herb Hodges is passionate about discipleship. Praise God for Him. When I know Him, and when I establish Him as of greatest worth and most infinite value, I am passionate about taking the good news of the Gospel to everyone... That would give an ear. Why? Because that's how passionate Christ is. Knowing Christ is discovering Christ and becoming passionate just about the things that He's passionate about. Kind of the same way in a love relationship in marriage. You discover new truths and new treasures about your wife and you're excited about what you've discovered about her to the point that you want to respond to what you've discovered. Not that you're changing internally on your own, but you're conforming to her passion. Why? Because there's such worth placed upon her. That's how we all do it in marriage, right men? John Piper makes a statement, and he makes this statement in reflection of 1 Peter two seven. He says this. He says, The mark of a saint, a child of God, is not that we have attained or are perfect, but that we long for Christ. We thirst like hungry babies for His Word and fellowship and power. No Christian is satisfied with His present condition. We are hungry. And the more we taste, the hungrier we get for Jesus. I think that's what Paul say. I'm knowing Him. I'm discovering, and it just makes me want him all the more. His value does not diminish with time, it increases. And the better we know him, the more we love him. And when we finally enter into his presence with rejoicing, our endless song will be Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Your mouth is always full of praises for what you value most. To you who believe He is precious. I want to ask you, bow your head with me this morning, with a question in mind. What do you value most? John Calvin said that we need to reflect on the worth of Christ because we're so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view. And in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. I can identify with Calvin. I can identify with Lewis. Maybe not even on that level. My thinking may be a lot more, to a degree, elementary than that. I know our temptation. Young, old, middle-aged man, teenage boy, teenage girl. Sometimes we can think that the Christian life is about giving up a bunch of stuff. Christian life is about what I have to give up. The Christian life is about what I can't do or can't have. Listen, I pray, beloved, that the Spirit of God would speak to us and remind us this morning that anything that we give up is based upon the worth of He who is by far more value than anything we could obtain, have, want, desire. It's the normal Christian life. It's the man walking in the field, finding a treasure, going back selling everything he has to purchase the field in order to have a treasure. It's the normal Christian life. It's it's a man who finds a pearl of great price and he buys the pearl. He sells everything he has in order to obtain it. And so I pray this morning that we would be reminded of the value of Christ as seen in the Gospel, as seen on the cross. As we see God reaching down into the hearts of men We see true religion, God reaching down, Christianity coming downward from God to us only because of the great love by which He loved us and He was not obligated to do so. But He chose to love us with such a great love in spite of us. And so, Father, this morning I would pray and I would ask God help us to see the worth of the cross, the worth of the Gospel. Help us to see that worth is God-centeredness. Help us to see that worth is found when all attention and all of, all worth is taken away from men and it's placed upon You. Help us to see this morning, God, that, that Lord, we need oriented. We need oriented to true religion, God. So I pray this morning that, Father, You would speak to us. You would awaken us. You would remind us of Your worth. And the reality is of of Your worth is You take Your worth and You place Your worth upon unworthy people like us. Because of that, we stand cloaked in the righteousness of Christ before a holy God. And Father, there is nothing that we can say other than, God, thank you. And we say this in Jesus' name, Amen.